Hello, and welcome back to Elder Sign, a weird fiction podcast by Clay Temple Media. I'm Glenn McDorman. And I'm Brandon Buddha. In this episode, we're covering Shirley Jackson's short story, The Demon Lover, originally published in 1948 in uh, a collection we have called The Lottery and Other Stories. Yeah, here we are. We are back. This is our, our first episode of, of 2020, and a, a lot happened uh, here. I mean, I guess in the world, I guess, at the end of 2020, but a, a lot <laughs> happened for us as a podcast network happened at the uh, the end of 2020 as well. We actually hit a lot of Patreon goals in the uh, the intervening months since we have uh, been off, and we took a pretty big recording hiatus kind of behind the scenes as well. One of the goals that we hit, the first one, this is the one that we'll, we'll talk about here on this show. Uh, was got us to $400 a month, which was a huge goal for us. It's a really big deal for the longevity of the, the network. And the reward for hitting that goal was that we would do five extra bonus episodes. We've uh, we've got them all up now, but the big one, the one that was germane to Elder Sign was that we did, Brandon and I did, The Rats in the Walls by H.P. Lovecraft. In fact, we did two episodes on that like 18-page short story because- we love it, and we had a lot to say about it. Yeah, that was a lot of fun. And uh, we're so grateful that our patrons have helped us hit this goal. The Rats of the Walls is a Patreon-exclusive episode. So if you want to hear it, consider supporting us on Patreon. We have a lot more goals that we want to hit, and we need your help to get there. So we'd really love more support. We want to hit more goals, do more stories that you love. And The Rats in the Walls was a great episode. Uh, we had a lot of fun doing it. We covered a lot of ground in that story. And if you want to hear it, uh, please consider supporting us on Patreon. We also uh, covered a story called The String of Pearls by Robert Block. That's up on Patreon right now. That was a lot of fun, too. So again, so grateful for everybody's support. We have a lot more goals that we want to hit. So if you aren't supporting us already on Patreon, please consider supporting us to get these bonus episodes, The Rats in the Walls and String of Pearls by Robert Block. Yes, and an X-Files episode that you and Valerie talked about, which is uh, super fun and, you know, sort of uh, at least uh, adjacent to what we're doing here on Elder Sign as well. Yeah, thank you so much to all the patrons who have gotten us to these goals. And, and we do hope if you if you aren't already a patron that you'll consider joining us because we do have some awesome stuff in the future. And in fact, you know, we'll remind people that we are closing in on doing At the Mountains of Madness by H.P. Lovecraft as well, which I, I think we would do. We'd end up doing at least 10 episodes on that. That would be a pretty big, uh, pretty big series to do an entire novel by H.P. Lovecraft. And in fact, if the way we did The Rats in the Walls is any indication, it might be like a 40-episode series on it, The Mountains of Madness. Uh, so, but that's getting ahead of ourselves. Let's uh, let's talk about the story at hand here today, The Demon Lover by Shirley Jackson, which I'm very excited to be doing. You know, Shirley Jackson got in our rotation because we did get a nomination from a Patreon supporter that, that got uh, the lottery on the ballot. And so now we have this collection. It's, it's in the rotation, and I'm so glad that it is. This is a story that, I mean, it's got a cool title, the Demon Lover. We'll talk more about that title in the discussion. I mean, this is a real creepy tale with just this layer of of dread looming over the story the whole time you are reading, just waiting for you know the shoe to drop or something like that. And it's it's really got a great effect. I loved reading this. I was on edge the whole time. Yeah, I was too. I mean, I think the the watchword for this story is really suspense. I mean, this is more of a suspense tale. The weird fi- fiction element, I think, comes in more through uh, context in a weird way. But this story is uh, just a straight suspense story, and it's executed perfectly. Well, yeah, let's get into it. I think one of the things that we're going to talk about is whether or not there is anything kind of weird going on in this story, if there is anything supernatural or numinous or preternatural going on in this story. So let's get into the recap. This story is told from a third-person limited point of view. Uh, so you have a narrator that is not first-person. It's not nobody saying, I did this or I did that. Uh, but we're still really close to the protagonist's perspective. We don't really get any omniscient narrative. And the main character is a woman, and it's her wedding day. Her betrothed, Jamie, had left her apartment at 1.30 a.m. the night before. The protagonist didn't sleep well at all that night. And eventually, at 7 a.m., she gets out of bed and makes some coffee. She's really nervous and isn't sure about what to wear or what to do with her morning. She thinks about writing a letter to her sister, Anne, and she begins to write this letter, but she can't complete it. And it's clear 
from her letter to Anne that this marriage is going to be unexpected or it is unexpected. Uh, and it's also the result uh, maybe of the series of some strange events. It's stranger than some other strange thing that's happened that we don't get narrated. The, the next thing that the protagonist does is try on some dresses. Then she makes more coffee and then she cleans the apartment. She has a headache, so she takes some aspirin, and the headache won't go away. So she puts her pillbox with some aspirin in it in one of her purses so that she can take some more later if she needs to. Once she's cleaned the apartment, and she's done this in order to make the place a perfect pad, a perfect place for her and her new husband when, when they end up there together. I think the indication here then is is that Jamie and the woman are going to be married in like a courthouse. This is not like a big planned wedding. So after she does all this stuff and, and we get these indications that this, this wedding is going to be a private affair between Jamie and the protagonist, uh, she drinks a little more coffee and then takes a bath. And then she thinks about what she's actually going to wear. Uh, we learned she has new underwear. She has plenty of clean underwear. She has some nice dresses, uh, one of which Jamie has seen her in quite a lot. One of the dresses she has, he hasn't really seen her in. It's like a dress with a floral print, uh, but it's a little too early in the season. And maybe the dress is just a hair too unfashionable for the wedding. So she's just got jitters. She's got wedding day jitters and and she's just at a loss of what to wear and when she puts on her floral dress and looks at herself in the mirror the protagonist feels just real revulsion at herself she feels like jamie will think that she's trying too hard to look prettier or younger than she really is and jamie won't like that so she tears the dress off herself and tears the seam in the arm of the dress then she thinks about buying a dress, uh, but she checks her the time and she doesn't have time to do it because she also has to do her hair and makeup. And this sense that she has that she has to look like an amplified but not an authentic version of herself is, is a weird thread that is woven through the first section of this story. And it comes up again with regards to the makeup. The woman is trying to look as honestly like herself as possible while still looking as good as possible. She doesn't want Jamie to feel like she's deceiving him. She's 34 years old and, and she has this skin and face of probably like a healthy 34-year-old woman. But here, Glenn, and you can correct me if I'm wrong, uh, I think the text indicates that on the marriage license, she wrote down that she was 30 years old. Yeah, it does say the license. You know, I just automatically thought driver's license, but this is not someone who has a driver's license. She lives in New York. She isn't driving a car. She's a, a woman in the 40s, right? She's not driving a car. She doesn't have a driver's license. It must be the marriage license, which then I guess means they've already done that bit of paperwork, which was was maybe not my my understanding of what's happening here, though that doesn't really, I don't think, change the reading too dramatically for me. Yeah, I don't I don't I don't expect that it would. And I wonder, I mean, the marriage license and is that came with like questionnaires, I think, in the early earlier part of the 20th <laughs> century, um, that had all sorts of stuff about, you know, like, should you actually be getting married? Uh, in any event, this was just another interesting note in the story, this this kind of fear of being deceitful for Jamie. But, but the protagonist here is overwhelmed. I mean, that is the main theme here of the opening of the story. She is just way overwhelmed. And so she sits back down after thinking about her hair and makeup and clothes, and she drinks more coffee, and she tries to imagine Jamie, like the person. She tries to hold the person in her mind, but she can't. And that's fine. Because it's tough to imagine someone you actually love. They're almost too real to be imagined, might be the indication here. <laughs> and and Jamie's just getting started in his writing career. So like these are the things we know about Jamie or that the um, protagonist does. Jamie's just getting started in his writing career. And, and once he starts making it, they'll be able to get a house in the country. And she would be able to relearn some cooking skills and, and make Jamie angel food cake and fried chicken with hollandaise sauce. So now she's just really imagining the future of their life together, kind of their 
their fantasy, her fantasy life. This opening is just a, a totally mundane scene, right? We're just in the head of the protagonist as she is nervously, you know, puttering around her studio apartment. But it is an awesome opening. Jackson, she just perfectly captures the state of nervous waiting that this character is going through. I myself am a very impatient person. I get like this when something important is happening, but it's not actually going to be for hours. But yet, I still can't really do anything else in the meantime. So I fill up that time with meaningless tasks like this as well. Like how much laundry can I possibly do right now? Even though there probably are better things I could do, right? It's, it's just puttering about. This really resonated with me. Uh, also, you know, the endlessly making of coffee. I mean, that's just like a thing that I do when I'm waiting for something to happen. But uh, yeah, so this resonated with me. Uh, also gave me a lot of anxiety to read it because it was like looking in a, a dark mirror. But Jackson also gives us a lot of information here as she is building a picture of who this woman is and what her life is like. Uh, we know that she has a sister who lives far away. We know that she lives in a small apartment by herself. We also know that she doesn't do her own laundry, right? And those little things are really a, a portrait of a life. And I love these details. Yeah, it's fantastic. And it really gives us the sense that she's a professional woman in some way. She's making a way for herself. She's not relying or hasn't relied in the past on, a, on like a man to make a home for or any sort of stereotypical gender norms. And I love the way that Jackson is just giving us this professional woman in New York in the 1940s in the time when the story was written. It's fantastic. I mean, she can't escape the desire or need for romantic love. Even as she has staked out this completely independent life that, that, that I am at least inferring is a, some bit of some point of tension or contention with her family who are, don't live in New York City, right? We know this because she's got to write a letter to her sister, right? The, this character, the protagonist of this story is someone who has migrated to New York City for a, a career from someplace else. It might not be super far away, right? This is the 40s, but you know, it's rural Pennsylvania, rural New Jersey or New York or Connecticut or something like that, and is on her own, separated from her family and unmarried and making a life here for herself, right? That's the portrait that Jackson has built up without really having to explain any of that to us. All of that is just brilliant world building. But Jackson also does a great job of showing us the plot without really telling us the plot. The protagonist thinks that she's getting married today, but it is something that has been arranged quickly, not perhaps totally on a whim. They they seem to have already filled out the license, but it's been arranged quickly, right? She doesn't have a wedding dress. She doesn't have an engagement ring. She hasn't been able to tell anyone. They're definitely just going to the courthouse, right? They haven't booked a venue, invited guests, and so on. And she is older than women usually are when they marry in the 1940s. She is also older than she tells other people. She clearly didn't think that she would ever get married, and she can hardly believe that this is happening. And the thing is, she isn't getting married today. And we, the readers, can tell that right away. We know this, right? We don't have to be told this. Jackson shows this to us by giving us all this nervousness from her perspective. So it's really just a question of what is going to be the obstacle that prevents the marriage from happening or the wedding from happening today. And so Jackson has built up here, I think the word you used at the top of the show, Brandon, is, is suspense, right? She builds up the suspense. We, the readers, we're going to keep turning the pages to find out why the wedding at City Hall isn't going to happen, we're to, to find out why Jamie is going to fail to show up, because we know that's what's going to happen. Yeah. And I mean, the title also kind of gives it away a little bit. I mean, I don't think as readers, we want somebody to marry a, a demon lover, regardless of how anxiously they putter around their apartment. <laughs> well, uh, I think there is an audience for that story. <laughs> I'm sure there is. Well, at, at this point in the in the narrative, it's 1030 a.m. So she's been up for three and a half hours. Really, she's been up all night. And the protagonist calls the what time is it phone number uh, through the wires in the telephones in the 1940s, I guess, <laughs> and realizes that it's actually only 1029. So she's like, you know, ahead of time in her mind. Uh, it's a great way to demonstrate this anxiety when you're checking the clock and thinking like, it's, is it later than I think it is? Is it earlier? What's going on? She adjusts her clock. And in any event, she's got to get moving. Her and Jamie were supposed to meet at 10 o'clock and he hasn't arrived yet. 
So the protagonist just uses this time to continue to get ready to make sure everything is is perfect in the apartment. She re-sews the tear in the seam in the floral dress. She puts everything away. She drinks another coffee. And she doesn't have anything to eat, which isn't quite true. She doesn't have anything she wants to open in the apartment because everything that she has is new. And she's waiting for her and Jamie to start their life together because she wants to open all of the new food for breakfast tomorrow. It's a very nice sentiment. All of this new bit of work that she's done has taken an hour. So now it's 1130 and Jamie still hasn't showed up. And now the protagonist is hungry. So she writes a note real quick to Jamie in case he ends up in the apartment um, while she is running down to the drugstore to get some food. She double checks the apartment before she leaves to make sure everything is new and clean and perfect. And she gets to the drugstore and realizes that all she actually wants is another cup of coffee because it might take too long to get some food or have some food made. And she's worried that if she does get some food, Jamie will be waiting at her apartment and then she'll just have eaten and she doesn't want to deal with that. So she just races back to her apartment. And then when she gets to her apartment, Jamie's not there, but there's more she can do because the apartment smells a little bit stale from cigarette smoke. So she opens a window And then she sits down and kind of collapses and she sleeps for a little over an hour. And then when she wakes up again, Jamie still has not arrived. And now she's concerned. She washes up and she leaves the hand towel rumpled uh, uh, on the sink or on the on the uh, towel holder. She grabs the wrong pocketbook for her dress and she hails a cab to take her to Jamie's place. And apart from her concern, she's kind of worried about these perception issues that we've seen. So she's worried that if the cab driver drops her off right at the apartment at Jamie's building, right at the door to Jamie's building, Jamie might think it's strange or that she's doing something untoward. So she has the cab driver drop her at the corner by the apartment building and then walks the rest of the way. And now we learn that she had never been to Jamie's apartment before. And so she looks at the list of names on the doorbells that she can ring, but Jamie's name isn't on any of these. So she rings the superintendent's bell and asks if he can put her in touch with James Harris. The superintendent's a little confused by this request, so he calls Margie, his his wife, who, you know, I think it's his wife, at least. It's not spelled out in the text, but it's the woman living with the superintendent in his apartment who knows everything the superintendent does and maybe a little more about the social lives of the people who live here. Uh, Margie doesn't know who James Harris is, though, but the protagonist is insistent that James lives here in this building. So she describes him to the couple, uh, to the superintendent and Margie. And here we learn that James is tall and fair And he wears a blue suit most of the time and that he's a writer, which we've already learned. After thinking it through, Margie says that a man matching that description did live on the third floor in the Royster's apartment. He lived there for about a month while the Royster's were away, but the Royster's just got back. So if James isn't with them, she can go up to the Royster's apartment and ask them about James. So the superintendent and Margie let in our protagonist and she goes up to the third floor where the Roysters live. Fortunately for her, the Roysters are in and our protagonist begins to grill Mrs. Royster about James. Mr. Royster is really skeptical of this James guy and he's a little miffed about the fact that his wife let James stay at their place at all. But Mrs. Royster defends herself saying that James, first of all, James is not her friend. He, he's really more of an acquaintance that the husband says she picked up at, quote, one of those damn meetings. <laughs> I'm really quite sure what these meetings are. Um, and Mr. and Mrs. Royster then have a little conflict about the, the nature of Mrs. Royster's friends and how Mr. Royster's responds to Mrs. Royster's friends. And they're not really thinking about James Harris at all. I mean, it's clear that he is a non-entity in their life. Maybe he's just a catalyst for a kind of a low-grade marital conflict. Uh, but they do say that that when they got back this morning, the apartment looked as though he was never there at all, James. And they have no idea where he went. 
The, the Roysters suggest then that she can probably ask the superintendent. He would know more than they do about James. <laughs> we already know that that's a dead end. So now the protagonist is freaking out. The scene in the house, I guess really it's it's two scenes, right? With the super and then with the, the Roysters. Royster, by the way, this was a name I had a hard time with. For some reason, it just looked to me like it was a, a shortening and elision of Royal Oyster. I don't know why that got stuck in my head. And I don't know what Royal Oyster would be, but I would read that book series or something. <laughs> but um, but we learn a lot here. I mean, the thing is that, that, that the, the protagonist is engaging with two married couples at this house and seeing that maybe marriage is not all it's cracked up to be. I mean, certainly with the Roysters, right? I don't know what these damn meetings are either, but there's a real insinuation here that Mrs. Royster is not sexually faithful to Mr. Royster. And Mr. Royster knows it. And yet they still, you know, but they just go on vacation. So it's fine or something like that. That was my inference here. That, that seemed to be this kind of like darkness, uh, this sort of dark part of, of marriage that Shirley Jackson is painting here. And then the super and the woman, Marjorie, who we th- I guess we think is probably his wife, I guess, they laugh at the protagonist when she says that she's here looking for uh, Jamie Jamie Harris. She knows that he lives here because he told her so, but they don't know who this is. And they think that she has been let on in some way. And they they laugh at her, right? So, so Jackson is planting this seed here for us that this is an ugly world in which everyone knows that relationships don't really work out, right? That the the storybook romance is only for storybooks, right? And they're all kind of laughing at this woman who believes in that and believes that she's living that story and is confused about why Jamie hasn't shown up when the answer seems so obvious to to the rest of them. I think that's a great way to put it. I mean, the answer is obvious to everyone else, but not to the protagonist. And this scene where people are laughing at her is something that she carries with her throughout the the story. Um, I love your sense of what's going on with the Roysters. I mean... It's clear, at least from the text, that Mr. Royster has a more intimate relationship with his radio and newspaper than he does with his <laughs> wife. Um, and it's, so it's very possible that Mrs. Royster is, uh, you know, picking up men at, you know, the the, the Rotary Club or something right. like that. <laughs> <laughs> yes. All of that is, I think, just right there beneath the surface. Up to this point, I mean, you pointed out, Brandon, of course, right? We are going into this story knowing that the title of it is The Demon Lover. And so we're wondering, like, we've got the lover. It's Jamie. Harris, where does the demon part come in? And one of the things that we might be thinking is, especially after we talk to the landlord, is does Jamie Harris actually exist, right? Because the protagonist has never been to his apartment. They've been having this relationship for a brief time and entirely seemingly at her place or, you know, out in the world of New York City, but never at his place, right? But at the Roysters, though, when we go upstairs and we talk to the Roysters, we do actually corroborate the existence of Jamie. And so we know that he had given the protagonist his address. It was correct. So, you know, maybe he was not actually just tricking her into having a fling with her and then absconding, which is certainly what the landlord thinks, right? But we also learn that he has had to leave the place he's been staying and and seemingly for free or at least for a very low rent. And that correlates with our knowledge that he and the protagonist plan to stay at her place tonight. So maybe he is actually a scoundrel and he's really just looking for a place to live. And so he's going to stay hidden until it is too late to get married because, you know, we can't get to the courthouse in time today, but then he'll still find a way to crash at her place for a few days or maybe a few weeks without paying anything for it. And he'll always find some way to put off the actual getting married business, right? That's what I'm thinking is going to happen right now. And we'll see if that turns out to be true. Right. And and we know that he's poor because he really only has one suit. He can be described as the man in the blue suit to people. And he since he only wears that suit, it's like an icon that people recognize. Well, as we said, the protagonist is freaking out and trying to plan her next steps. Like, how can I find Jamie? And she's racking her brain, thinking about where she might get more information about where Jamie could have gone. So she goes to the deli close by because you can get sandwiches there and asks the man at the counter if he's seen Jamie recently. And the deli clerk is really hostile towards her. And so she leaves to think some more like nobody has time to help her with her problem. The next place she stops is the newsstand that's close to this 
area here, the apartment building, the deli, and, and there's a newsstand. And she asks the men at the newsstand whether or not they've seen anyone matching Jamie's description. And the way they look at her makes her feel really self-conscious. I mean, at this point, the protagonist is beginning to feel like she's been taken for a fool. And people are really treating her that way. Nobody's kind. They're treating her like a fool. But the protagonist knows she has got to find Jamie. She wants to clear all this up. And it turns out that the people at the newsstand have seen someone matching Jamie's description. He was at the newsstand at about 10 a.m. and he was heading uptown, which we'll learn is the direction of uh, that you would walk to get to our protagonist's apartment. The men laugh at her as she begins to walk uptown. The next place that the protagonist stops in is the florist shop. And she thinks that Jamie might have gotten her flowers for their wedding day. So she asks the people at the shop about Jamie. Maybe this a man looking like this has been here around 10 o'clock this morning or a little after. Like everybody else, the florist is bothered by the protagonist and her questions. They're evasive, the people in the shop but they also sense her desperation. And eventually, one of the florists remembers that there was someone like Jamie buying chrysanthemums. And this revelation shocks the protagonist because she thinks that chrysanthemums would be highly inappropriate flowers for a wedding. But someone like Jamie did buy a dozen chrysanthemums this morning and left the store with them. And as the florist is escorting the protagonist out, uh, they try to sell the protagonist some flowers so that she'll look her best. They ask her if she wants like a, a corsage or some roses or something like that. But really what's happening is if she's not buying anything, she really just shouldn't be in the <laughs> store at all. Well, the next thing that happens is that she sees some policemen and is debating with herself whether or not to ask them about Jamie. I mean, in her mind, Jamie's a missing person. And she's so desperate. She imagines the scenario where she explains to them, the policeman, that her and Jamie were to be married this day and no one is taking her seriously because of her stupid dress and she just feels awful. And she imagines more about how she'd explain the situation to the policeman and realizes that anything she wants to say will sound stupid. But what she really wants to say is this, and I'm going to take this from the text. Yes, it looks silly, doesn't it? Me all dressed up and trying to find the young man who promised to marry me. But what about all of it you don't know? I have more of this, more than you can see. Talent, perhaps, and humor of a sort. And I'm a lady and I have pride and affection and delicacy and a clear view of life that might make a man satisfied and productive and happy. There's more than you think when you look at me. Uh, this is just a great bit of internal monologuing. Um, but I also think Jackson is trying to capture something more broadly about the feminine experience in the time that she's writing. Absolutely. This is going to be a center point of our discussion for sure. Great. I can't, I can't wait because you and I were, were talking a little before the show about how uh, a lot of this story are things that you and I cannot necessarily relate to directly. But I think Jackson does an incredible job of giving us this subjective experience that we can understand. Uh, and it's a, it's a masterful piece of work. Yes. And this is what literature is for. I mean, it is nice, I guess, when we read something that enhances our uh, thinking about our own experiences, right? That resonates with us. It says, yes, I have lived that experience too. But a huge reason we read fiction is actually to learn about experiences that we haven't had, experiences we might not be capable of having, to develop empathy for people who are not like us in, in some way. So I'm glad. In fact, I, I feel lucky to have read this story. Well, the protagonist is still on her quest to find Jamie. And she, after kind of thinking about how she just wants to express what's going on to the police, that she actually had better not. I mean, really, she doesn't want to get laughed at a third time. So the next place she stops is a shoeshine stand. And she asks the man at the stand, about Jamie again. And, and this is the only nice character in the story. He is really open and kind to her experience. He says that Jamie had stopped for a shine. He had the flowers 
And the shoeshine man thought this man is going to see his girl. And he tells her that Jamie continued uptown. At this point, the protagonist is looking for change to tip the man for his help, but she doesn't have any. And so she leaves and hurries uptown, which is, as we said, the direction that her apartment is in. She's convinced at this point that she's kind of tracked Jamie's footsteps this morning, that Jamie's actually just at the apartment and waiting for her. And they've just kind of missed each other, like, you know, two ships in the night, as the saying goes. Um, But she can't see in the windows and there's like, you know, so she can't get an indication that he's been there. And so she hurries into the door and says, as she's opening it, Jamie, I'm here. I was so worried. But he's not there. And her apartment is the same as she left it. Right. We knew this was going to happen. We read some detective stories here. Detective stories are my jam. And uh, she's the worst detective I've ever encountered, right? She has no method right, for this. She's not <laughs> done any real rational investigating or, or rational inquiry here. She's built up a picture of Jamie's morning that just I'm, I'm totally skeptical of, uh, especially after de- she decides that he must be walking around with flowers for her, right? I mean, she's just feeding people the answers that she's hoping for. So nothing she learns is reliable, right? She's not really conducting an, inv- an investigation so much as talking herself into a belief that we had to know was going to turn out to be false, turn out to be delusional. Right. I mean, everything that she encounters, we can be skeptical of because she has a description of a person that could describe lots of people. And we also learn at the opening of the story that she she doesn't have a good sense of who he is. She doesn't really have a anything to hold on to, to carry of him in her mind. Her description of him being a tall, fair man in a blue suit, you know, ostensibly on a Saturday or a Sunday, that could be a lot of people. Um, so we, we just don't know. She's going to places where she thinks Jamie might have gone, but this could be anybody. Well, our protagonist rushes out of the apartment at this point because as we said, Jamie's not there. And she goes to the drugstore where they haven't seen him either. And then she goes back to the shoeshine man. And the shoeshine man points to uh, like a row of houses and say, yeah, Jamie went to this area. He went into one of these houses. And he assumed, the shoeshine man, that Jamie was going to take his flowers and his shine shoes to his girl. So just this assumption that the shoeshine man has has to feel like a slap in the face to the protagonist where she's like, I'm his girl and he didn't come to my home, uh, (laughs) but he went to somebody else's. The protagonist runs over to the kind of block where these houses are that the shoeshine man pointed out. And she's at this point just listening for laughter because she's listening to hear Jamie's laughter Um, that maybe he's in a house somewhere and he's laughing, maybe not at her, but just is convivial, having some sort of uh, jovial moment with some other people that he knows. But she hears nothing. And she comes across a woman in front of one of the houses on the street with a baby. And she asks the woman if she has seen Jamie. A boy overhears her questions to this woman with the baby, and this boy tells the protagonist that he's seen Jamie. He's seen the man matching this description, and the woman tries to get information out of the boy, but all he does is ask her if she's going to find him so that she can divorce him, and it's horrible, (laughs) but eventually the boy tells the protagonist where Jamie went. He says, since I told you this, And since Jamie gave me a quarter, I want a quarter from you. (laughs) And she doesn't have any quarters, so she gives the boy a dollar. And the boy says that Jamie went to the top floor of an apartment building, and he continues to ask about whether she's trying to find him to divorce him. And now the woman with the baby is laughing at the protagonist. So the woman heads inside the apartment building. It's unlocked. There are no names on the door buzzers. I mean, this is like a flop house, basically. It's a place that hasn't been kept up with. It's unclean everywhere. And on the floor outside of the apartment on the third floor, I mean, our protagonist has investigated like each floor to look for signs of Jamie. Uh, so on the floor outside of an apartment on the third floor is some crumpled paper from the florist. And this is the last clue that the woman needs to know that Jamie has come to this place. She hears some voices inside of one of the apartments and she knocks on the door. 
And when she does that, the voices stop. So she knocks again. And this time there's only silence, but maybe also the protagonist can hear the sound of like fading laughter of like faraway laughter. And now she realizes she has no idea what she's going to say to Jamie if he does come to the door. I mean, she's not prepared for a confrontation. She's been preparing all morning to get married. So she retreats a little bit and checks the other door on the floor, the other apartment. And this door is open. Uh, It opens when she knocks on it a little bit. And it's an empty attic room. There's bare lath on the walls, so it's an unfinished room. Like plaster hasn't covered the lath. Um, the floors are unpainted, and she hears this weird noise. And she turns and sees a rat with an evil face watching her. She doesn't want to be in the same place as a rat. She knows she's not going to get anywhere with the apartment that she heard voices in, so she leaves. And she can still tell that someone is in the other apartment, but they're just not answering the door. And she can still hear these low voices and laughter. Here's the end of the story. She came back many times, every day for the first week. She came back on her way to work in the mornings, in the evenings on her way to dinner alone. But no matter how often or how firmly she knocked, No one ever came to the door. The end. Yeah, this is a creepy, creepy ending. I mean, we do here at the end maybe seem to get some material evidence that the protagonist has been right and and has been on the right track the whole time, despite my complaints about her her poor abilities as a detective. And and right, that the, the people really have been seeing Jamie, or at least, you know, a man in a blue suit with some chrysanthemums. They've been giving her correct information. But of course, this is not a happy ending. It's not a happy ending for the protagonist. Something strange is going on with this uh, this top floor apartment that she's found where people are inside laughing, but who never opened the door. And and this really is, is where I want to start the discussion. If setting aside, or, or at least maybe cordoning off the fact that the story is titled The Demon Lover and what that might mean, setting that aside, what do you think, Brandon, what do you think happened here from Jamie's perspective, right? Where is Jamie now? Is he just having a tryst with multiple women at the same time, kind of trying to find a place to, to crash? And he sort of picked a, a favorite here and it's at this apartment building that the protagonist keeps going to, or is something else happening? What do you think this story looks like from Jamie's perspective? Yeah, I mean, I think he's a scoundrel. I think that was the right word to use to describe him when you used it before, (laughs) and that he's just using people for room and board. Um, I mean, he's never going to make it as a writer. If he were to stay with uh, the protagonist, their life would not be the life in the country house where she has relearned how to batter chicken and make hollandaise sauce, um, that she would just be supporting him, and he would be like... Mr. Royster without a job. Uh, Mr. Royster, I assume, has a job since they went on vacation. Um, but just having a, a deeper relationship with the newspaper and the radio than with her. And I think the speed with which they feel they needed to get married uh, and all this stuff going on, she's alone. You know, I was scouring the text to see if she was pregnant, um, but I don't think that's indicated anywhere in the text. But I I do think that Jamie used her and then, um, I don't know. I don't know if he's a ghost, but he's certainly not answering the door. (laughs) I don't know if anyone really lives in this building, but I think he definitely was using her and then things got too serious when the, you know, when the ink dried on the, on the marriage license, when they were doing the paperwork and he scrammed. Right. I, I think when I said let's set aside the title, I guess what I really meant was let's pretend this is not a weird fiction story, or at least let's pretend we don't want to explore the question of whether or not this is a weird fiction story. We're going to do that. But you know, let's treat this like it is just a mundane story. And yeah, your reading of Jamie is exactly my reading of Jamie as well. I, I'm not even sure he's actually even trying to be a writer so much as he's pretending to try to be a writer. I mean, my sense is that this is it's not just that this is New York City, this is Greenwich Village. And which is yeah, you know, here in the 1940s is maybe a little bit seedy. It's bohemian. That's really the word I'm looking for, right? There are a lot of artists uh, living here. Uh, you know, the rent is fairly inexpensive and there's a nightlife that that's going on. But 
Also, there are lots of people hanging around who are not really artists of any sort, but like the nightlife, like the lifestyle of that, and are just kind of clinging to that. And my sense is that that's who Jamie is, that Jamie is a fairly attractive man. Uh, He's got one nice suit, at least, and he claims that he's working on writing. Maybe he actually has a little bit of writing, you know, that he, he reads to, you know, women to, you know, bear his soul to them and make them feel special and so on. But really all he's trying to do is live an exciting life in Greenwich Village without having to pay anything for it. He's trying to have sex with a lot of women, have women who work for a living buy his drinks and pay for him to live places. And He's not good at writing, but he seems to be pretty good at this. Right. I think the word for a man like this is a gigolo. <laughs> Correct. Yeah, there is a word for this. Yeah, yeah. But I, I'm sticking with scoundrel, though. <laughs> but, uh, uh, not the Han Solo kind of scoundrel, right? The, the, the affable and ultimately redeemed scoundrel. I don't think there's any redemption here. And, uh, and actually, maybe that's where we should go next. Let's think about this as a weird fiction story, right? The story is titled The Demon Lover. It ends with some weird stuff, right? We get these two rooms in the attic of this house that's been converted to apartments. Uh, One of them has an evil rat in it, and then the other (laughs) one has muffled voices and distant laughter and a, a piece of paper from a bunch of flowers in front of it. But no one ever answers the door. Not ever, even over multiple days. So is something weird happening here? Uh, Something supernatural, something numinous, something fantastical? I mean, do you think Jamie's a ghost? I mean, I don't think he's a ghost because the Roysters uh, affirm his existence, but he lives like a ghost. I mean, the metaphor here is that he he, he lives like a ghost um, or even like a, a demon. Like he he latches on, not like a demon in the sense of like uh, being created by Satan to torment souls in hell or something <laughs> like that, but more of like a demon, like a familiar spirit uh, that like kind of latches on to people and then leaves that. Uh, I don't know. I don't know how often. I don't know too much lore around it. Uh, but certainly leaving them uh, after they've used them up is maybe a part of the the lore in some sense. Um, and that that's kind of what is going on with Jamie. I love the imagery at the end of this story, this kind of this kind of desperate hope that results in being laughed at. But you need to cling to the hope because if you succumb to the laughter, you've given up. You've, you have to admit the horror of the situation. And that's what the tragedy is at the end of the story. The the protagonist doesn't want to face the truth and would rather cling to her her desperation uh, because there's hope there that you know she can find a mate that she's not disposable or discardable that she is worthy of someone's love. Um, but she goes back for punishment um, because she needs to make sense of it. And uh, so I do think there there's some evil at play here. I mean, certainly the evil rat is a symbol of that. Uh, I, I, I would have liked more like broken porcelain dolls and stuff in this other attic apartment, but oh, no. the, the, the evil rat will have to suffice, I think. Yeah, I think the evil rat is all I could have taken. If there'd been dolls, I'm not sure I'd uh, I'd have been able to do this episode. <laughs> but uh, <laughs> but yeah, this this ending here, this all this imagery at the end is just really awesome. I, I didn't get you know, the ghost is certainly not the sense that that I had, but the the way that Jackson describes the the laughter coming from the this apartment that's got the the wrapping from the flowers in front of it just doesn't sound like there are real people in an apartment, a cheap, crappy apartment behind a thin door. It sounds like this, like this is laughter coming from like some other dimension or something like that, or like you know the the house is bigger on the inside, or you know that like the house itself is sort of weird and twisted. It actually really called to mind for me maybe kind of a, a mashup of uh, House of Leaves, but then also I was really quite reminded of the world of Robert W. Chambers's story, The Repairer of Reputations. Like I had this real sense that suddenly we've entered a New York where madness is is rampant, right? That the world is just del- Delusion on delusion on delusion, and that lurking behind every apartment door in New York City is someone who's living some crazy delusion that, like, they're the king of something, or, you know, that someone from outer space is talking to them. It just had this real uh, sinister vibe to it. Jackson builds that up without actually 
saying any of that stuff. It's it's really just tremendous. Yeah, I mean, what I what I was thinking of with this imagery, kind of what came to my mind, uh, if we're doing a, a kind of free association game here, was uh, why not? <laughs> yeah, was uh, there's there's a video game called Bloodborne, and you're in this town that's been kind of overrun by uh, monsters in some sense, but there are these doors in, to homes in the town with these red lanterns outside, and one of them is just a house full of laughing women when you knock on the door and they shoo you away. They're like, we don't open the door on this night because the monsters are out. And just that kind of laughter and the knocking really reminded me of kind of the the, the creepiness of the the way that that game is able to build moments like that. And just, just I don't think you can underplay how disquieting it is to hear laughter at a and and low voices and murmurs in a place where you expect the acoustics to be different or you expect people to be civil and and that is what makes this ending of the story feel so sinister as you put it which i think is the the perfect word I would love to hear you talk more about Bloodborne. I hope somebody someday will commission you to do a whole episode actually about Lovecraftian video games. But we need to talk about the elephant in the room here, which is that uh, the title, the Demon Lover, is not a, a phrase that Shirley Jackson has invented. It is the the name of a Scottish ballad from the 18th century. Uh, this ballad, there's a number of different versions of this ballad, but more or less it tells the story of a woman who is visited by a former lover of hers who entices her to leave her husband and her, her newborn baby, or at least her infant baby, for him, right, to go off with this former lover. And it is really ultimately a, a lament from the woman's perspective. She's She's made this choice. She's been seduced, enticed by her former lover, and now she's regretting it. She's wishing that she hadn't done this. And the lover turns out to be the devil. He's taking her to hell. And the name that he's used in disguise, right, when he was her lover, when he was in a human form and was her lover before she got married and had a baby, is James Harris, which is the name of the lover in our story here, the the mysterious lover that we, the reader, never have any direct uh, experience with. So now that we've got that out in the open, which we've been dancing around, Brandon, how does that affect your reading of the, the story? Is James Harris the devil? I think Jackson is kind of playing a little bit of a of a different game where she is taking this ballad and the ideas in the ballad and and kind of cramming it into the mundane experience that so many people have of being used, taken advantage of, of being drawn away by the promises of romantic love, uh, being drawn into the hopes of that, and you're avoiding your own life. I mean, we get that she she doesn't even want to open the food because she wants to maintain this perfect illusion for the next morning and to have open fresh bacon and uh, have 12 eggs in the dozen in the carton and just all of these things to the promise of that perfect illusion is what is what dr- has dragged this protagonist into this kind of hell of rejection, of being laughed at, of being made a fool. And so I think Jackson's game is really to take the weird and rather than to make the metaphor uh, literal, you know, we talk about that a lot, in, especially in weird fiction tales, um, she is letting the metaphor be the metaphor in the reader's mind and just telling a mundane story that the reader can then abstract from what the hell of this is really like. Well, I don't think any of that is wrong, but I did have a slightly different interpretation of of how Jackson is using this ballad. I, I actually had a strange sense, even though this story ends with all this weird imagery that really creeped me out, I actually had a sense that this is ultimately an optimistic story, that in fact, this is the prequel. This is the the woman in the ballad having this experience with the, the lover who is actually the devil in the disguise as James Harris, who is going to go on and marry someone else and have a family with that person, like, you know, next year or something like that. This is ultimately maybe kind of an optimistic story that although right now the protagonist has has really fallen in love with with Jamie who it turns out you know does not reciprocate those feelings really at all and has has played her uh in 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 some way we don't have the specifics about and she's 
going to have to live with this. She, When we leave her in this story, she's not reckoning with that yet. In fact, she's still clearly in denial about that, hoping that he'll show up and it will all have just been a big misunderstanding. We know that's not going to happen. She's going to have to deal with this. She's going to have to reckon with this. But I think that by letting us know that that you know Jackson has taken her cue from this ballad is a way of letting us know that that she's she is going to deal with that. But of course, right, there is also the fact that that part, the part where she gets married and has a baby, is only the middle part of the story. So maybe... Uh, Ultimately, ultimately, right? It is actually not an optimistic story that that Jamie's going to return, you know, at some point, you know, two years, three years from now, and undo all of the the healing and 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 growing that the protagonist is going to do in the aftermath of this love affair. Uh, that was sort of my my sense of it, anyway. I like that much more, and I and I wasn't, I'm not fam- like familiar enough with the ballad to make that uh, leap, um, and I wish I had because I, I really love that reading as well. That the that the wound that this unfinished business has caused has left an opening for Jamie to come back in to her life later on if she doesn't deal with it. She's wants the explanation. She wants the confrontation. She almost wants to be seduced again by him. She wants to hear that it was a misunderstanding, that he wasn't, that the man in the blue suit buying flowers wasn't him, that he got called away on some emergency and he couldn't write. She's, she'll be looking in her letterbox for weeks, maybe months, trying to get the letter of explanation, hoping it's there. Um, eventually she'll move on, but she'll never really move on. That wound will still be open. Uh, and, and I think that that's a, a beautiful reading of this story also. And we could even do some crit fic here, I guess, too, and actually maybe envision that Shirley Jackson is in, in some way actually dealing with maybe act three of this in her life, right? That like someone from her past has, you know, messaged her on Facebook or whatever, you know, and, <laughs> and maybe she's briefly tempted and then is thinking about like, you know, no matter what the stresses of my marriage are currently, uh, actually, that would be a terrible idea, right? That I should remember why this relationship with this other person who's now, you know, coming at me from out of my past didn't work out in the first place is actually because you were a scoundrel who maybe was a ghost and definitely was the devil, right? So, <laughs> right, not going to make just, that. Choice. She's just relaxing on San Sebastian and then gets the the telegram from Lady Brett <laughs> and, and just has to respond. <laughs> Absolutely, yeah, that's exactly what I'm envisioning. But let's talk about maybe the the theme or the motif, anyway. I think that Jackson is working with here, which is to say that this is a story that I think centrally is about about femininity. It's about beauty and femininity, maybe more specifically. It is clear that the other people in this story don't regard the protagonist as beautiful, and and she agrees with them. Uh, We know that she also considers herself old, so it may just be ageism here, right? That that correlation of, of youth and beauty that's become like the core idea in our culture, or at least one of the core ideas in our culture. But it may also just be that she is not physically attractive and never has been. But you know, in either case, whichever of those it is, what matters about this is that this shapes how people treat her. And this seems to me to be the, the theme of the story, the idea that Jackson is exploring here. I think that's right. It's clear that the protagonist has internalized a lot of negativity about her experience uh, or maybe in the way that she compares herself to women or other people compare her to women, that she's internalized those voices of comparison or the lack of approval of affirmation and can play the whole scenario out in her head without having to interact with anyone. Even the shoeshine man kind of doesn't believe or really indicate belief that she is the woman that James uh, is going to find, that James is going after, that James has a girl. It's not that he has this woman who was asking about him. It's that he's going to see his girl, who's who's probably somebody else. Um, and so I think that Shirley Jackson is, is doing an incredible job of um, communicating that internalized negativity. And we see that most fully in the uh, imagined encounter with the policeman. And I really love how she's done this. I I love how self-conscious the protagonist is about even trying to look pretty because she's not maybe classically pretty or not a looker. People aren't going to stop on the street and, and notice her. Um, and so she's self-conscious about even trying to get attention because she it, it makes her feel fraudulent or revulsed even to 
try to catch the eye of anybody, that she's found somebody who wants her when she's not trying to deceive people to make them think that she's pretty is a pretty big deal to her. It reminds me a lot of what I think is explored uh, beautifully in the television series, The Americans, where the the male protagonist of that show has a second relationship with a woman who is kind of these characteristics, who has at least internalized the sense that she is not worthy of attention or admiration. And what that does is open her up to being taken advantage of by somebody who needs to use her to spy on the FBI, which, you know, is not, not the demon lover in, in the sense, but is the same sort of attitude that this type of attitude, this type of internalized negativity, self-consciousness, revulsion, lack of self-confidence has actually left the protagonist open to a scoundrel to take advantage of her. And I think that that's another big part of what's what's happening in this story, too. Yeah, this is a fairly scathing critique of this society, the society that says that the number one job of all women is to be beautiful. Anything else they might bring to the table, right? talent perhaps, a humor of sort, uh, affection, pride, delicacy, a certain clear view of life that might make a man satisfied and productive and happy, those things are all secondary and maybe even tertiary, right? The primary thing is to to be beautiful. And that's just so hollow and empty, right? I have never felt that that pressure at all. I don't think you have either. And I wouldn't want to live in a world where I did feel that pressure. But it's clear that this is an experience that Shirley Jackson had, that this is, I mean, not this specific experience, right? But that this is, this is a world, right, that valued this. Shirley Jackson lived in a world where this was what the messaging was from society, advertising, uh, TV, radio, and, and so on. And it wore on her, right? And this is this is her monologue against that, and it is a powerful monologue. Yeah, I, I really loved that section of the story where she's the protagonist. Uh, you know, as Shirley ja- Shirley Jackson is writing her, is trying to combat that negativity, and but but she's she's drowning in it, and it's it's very expressive. It feels super honest and authentic, and it's it's a. For me, it's a it's a really satisfying way to encounter these ideas and these sorts of pressures that may be unique to to the feminine experience in uh, in America. The competing against the models that are everywhere um, and feeling like your job, as you put it, as a woman, is to demonstrate physical beauty instead of all of the other things that will make you a great partner, a great person to be with and feeling like you're, you're losing that battle. And this is a story that I think explores that in a, in a really exceptional way. And shows us how silly that is, right? This is what the Roysters are for, to show us how hollow those types of marriages, those types of relationships are, right? We feel sad for the protagonist. She's just gone through, she's going through something that is full of anguish, but she's, she's gotten lucky here. Jamie just absconded because what if Jamie had gone through with this and 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 married her he he's not going to have been a better person this is still who he is right she got lucky here yeah absolutely and i mean another thing that i think the the roysters marriage shows us is that if you live your whole life as a as a woman um on this quest to being noticed for beauty that doesn't stop because you got married. That habit of mind doesn't go away the morning you wake up with the right pieces of paper in the county file um, and that that quest never ends. And then, so where does that leave the husband? Well, he's retreated into what he can manage in his life and the wife's retreated into her habits of mind as well. And so what they have is a, a shared space and a shared bank account, and maybe they like to go to Cabo together. But is that a satisfying partnership? Um, and and we see that in this story, what the protagonist is looking for is a satisfying partnership. I know just enough about Shirley Jackson to not actually know anything useful about Shirley Jackson and like make terrible uh, uh, terrible assumptions about the intersection of her her life and her fiction. But I do know that she had a, a fairly unhappy marriage. I don't know if you know that's the 
place in life that she was when she wrote this story. In fact, I'd, I'd like to know a lot more about Shirley Jackson. I did do her her novel, We Have Always Lived in the Castle, as one of the first Atas episodes I did. And this is the second story of hers we've done here on Elder Sign. And I'm, I'm sold. I'm hooked. I'm hooked on Shirley Jackson. But I would also like to know more about her as a person. I know that there was this uh, this biopic about her that came out in 2020 with uh, Elizabeth Moss in the, the lead role as Shirley Jackson that, I don't know, that might be something fun we could do as a bonus episode or something someday. Yeah, I mean, I've read one uh, biographical article on her that I think was a, a review of a biography that came out. It was probably in the New York Review of Books. Uh, but yeah, she was she was a woman who had a difficult marriage, always felt like she was outcast in society. And her fiction was her place to explore a lot of her inner self, a lot of the stuff that she thought was wrong with society and um, maybe wrong with herself or, or, you know, it's tough when you feel outcasted to, to balance like, do I live with resentment for everybody else or do I feel bad about myself? You know, it's, it's a tough balance. And I think Shirley Jackson certainly struggled with those feelings um, throughout her life. Well, it would be fun to, to learn more about her and, and, I don't know, yeah, find some kind of way to do some more biographical material, maybe, maybe even read a biography, watch this film. I mean, even just not just about Shirley Jackson, but maybe sort of in general, uh, some about some of the writers that we cover here on Elder Side, that might be something that we can uh, start throwing into the rotation a little bit. But uh, now that I am dreaming big, I guess, about sort of uh, <laughs> uh, making some enhancements to the, the format here, I think that's going to do it for this episode. I'm Glenn McDorman. And I'm Brandon Buddha. You can find us and our other creative projects, as always, at claytemplemedia.com. We'd love for you to support the network if you're not doing that already. Uh, And when you do, you'll get access to these great bonus episodes, including the ones we talked about at the top of the show, The Rats in the Walls, String of Pearls. So please, if you haven't already, at least check us out on Patreon and consider uh, joining us and joining our network in support. Uh, you can find us at patreon.com slash Clay Temple Media. You can also talk to us about what you thought of this story at our uh, forum at claytemplemedia.com or our new subreddit. Let us know what you thought of The Demon Lover. So next time we're going to be back with the first story from a fresh Patreon ballot. And this is going to be Hobbs Hogg by Alan Moore, which uh, is a self-contained story, but is chapter one in his novel, Voice of the Fire. And it's a pretty big chapter and a pretty dense chapter. I'm actually really quite looking forward to talking about it. But because it is so big and so dense, we are going to do two episodes on this one. But until then, we greet you and say farewell. Farewell.